This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast as absorbing as Minecraft, but with 100% less resource gathering. Today we're discussing video game engagement. Why do we get absorbed by a game or fail to do so? Our guest is Dr. Jamie Madigan, host of the Psychology of Video Games podcast, author and creator of psychologyofgames.com. I'm Mark Lintonmeyer, only a couple of months out of a long and intense relationship with Hades. I'm Erica Spires, and I'm studying the correlation between the Nintendo Switch and my thoracic spinal flexion. And I'm Brian Hurt, attempting to clear one more level of Diablo 2 before we get going here. And our guests. Yeah, I'm Dr. Jamie Madigan. I run psychologygames.com, written a couple of books about the overlap between psychology and video games. My mission in life is kind of to popularize the use of psychology to both game design and helping players understand and approach video games on their own terms. Now, we've had professors on here before. We usually don't doctor out about them if they're philosophy folks, say. But in this area, it seems like so much of the the articles we typically consult when we do these video game episodes are not by people who have Mm -hmm. any sort of science mindset whatsoever. So finding your podcast and the fact that this is actually a thing that you can combine that low pleasure of (laughs) video game, (laughs) you know, what is generally considered that by the culture. With fancy science work, can you say a little about sort of how you got into that and what the point of the podcast is? Yeah, I mean, it is definitely a thing. There's more people out there than I realized there were when I started doing this. So that are doing this kind of thing where they're looking at video games and psychology and other neighboring academic fields like, you know, communications and economics and all that fun stuff. And I've been doing it for over 10 years now. So little over, I think it was like late, like December of 2009, I started the website, psychologygames.com, just as sort of like a a blogging or writing project, something fun to do. And kind of started writing about not necessarily people that were really studying video games, like academics or psychologists that were studying video games, but taking like all of these theories and all of this research that I was familiar with and sort of applying it to how it explained why games are made so often the way they are and like why we behave when we play them the way that we do and how they're like priced and marketed and sold. And it just kind of took off. And in the course of becoming part of that community, I discovered the community that there are people that are doing a lot of work around, you know, gaming motivation. Why do we play games? People doing work around video games and mental health issues and like how games can be used in therapy and how games affect our well-being and lots of research around that kind of thing. And I've had those people on as guests on my podcast over the years once I started that and then ended up writing Getting Gamers, which was the the first book that just sort of looked at pretty much what I just described. Like, you know, how do these, a lot of these existing theories of psychology explain video games and then also dipping into some of the research that's specifically targeted at video games around the effects of games and how we interact with people, you know, some of the social psychology around computer mediated and game mediated interactions, that kind of stuff. And to paint the whole picture for you, Jamie, how much of a gamer are you and what games do you love? If in fact you love games, because if you don't, I I think you might have picked the wrong profession. (laughs) I hate them. Uh, I think they're a blight upon the world and I'm doing a very terrible job of (laughs) getting rid of them and safeguarding the planet. It's a habit, a pastime that I never dropped from childhood. So, you know, I've been playing since I was a kid and might be aging myself a little bit here, but I was, you know, an arcade rat. When I was a kid, I would go to the coin operated arcades. There was a 
games people play and on Aladdin's castle within walking distance, two of them from where I lived. So that's where I would spend, you know, a lot of my afternoons and definitely where I would spend like my Saturdays and Sundays uh, walking down there and just hanging out with friends and trying to stretch my quarters the furthest that they would go. And then just never dropped the habit and got into PC gaming, kind of got really back into it in like the, the mid 90s when it was kind of the first golden age of PC gaming. And then worked adjacent to the video game industry after I graduated with my PhD in psychology for a few years in the early 2000s, kept playing PC games. And then these days I play them on everything. So, you know, I've got a gaming PC, I've got consoles. Unfortunately, I've, I have yet to be able to get my hands on one of the new PlayStation 5 or Xbox consoles. They're very rare in the wild these days. But as soon as I can get one, I'll, I'll be there as well. So yeah, it's been a lifelong hobby and it's been fun to marry it up with psychology, which is my other sort of big interest and background in both education and work. So I was pretty young when Aladdin's Castle was at our local mall. I don't know why I felt this way exactly, but maybe you guys will have some perspective on it. I used to go, it was like one of the first things you'd see. It was off to the right-hand side. There was the Aladdin's Castle. And it was always kind of dark and it went back and I, I hardly ever went in there because I was, I was young and my mother was a very nervous mother. So she was always saying like, oh no, you can't go in there. And I thought that it was because I think she thought that somebody could take me. Like it was just full of people and it was, it was dark. And show you some awesome video games. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, I think she was actually just afraid of me being kidnapped all the time. So in my head, I was like, oh, that's where the bad kids go. That must be, if, if mom <laughs> thinks it's bad, there must be all sorts of drug use and making out. And I think, I think there probably was at the time this idea, which these super nerdy people were actually just playing video games in there, that that's where like, that's where kids go to, to get crazy. Yeah. They go to the arcade. Get high on Donkey Kong. Yeah. <laughs> there were, there were some arcade attendants that were probably selling things besides quarters out of the back room <laughs> of the, the arcades that I went to. But you know, I was just a kid, so they left me alone. There's a scene in 30 Rock where Liz Lemon walks into the writer's room and says, we as a group might not smell too good. And I think maybe more than anything, your mom was just knowing she was never going to get that smell out of your clothes. <laughs> maybe that was it. I don't know. Because we did have consoles at home and it was more so... It's funny now to think of it because the people I hang out with now are all gamers and they're all just the nicest, nerdiest people in the world. So I'm just imagining had I actually gone in there it would have been full of those types of people. I think so. Yeah, it's just people bonding around common interests like they do all the time. And theirs happen to be video games and, and hanging out in arcades. I mean, I was raised in the Bible Belt during, you know, the 80s and 90s. So like... So was I. Understandable, right? Yeah. Yes, you were. Yes, you were. Yeah, and I know parents like the ones that you described there and others. And My parents were just like, I don't care, be back home before I get up in the morning and you're fine. They were pretty loose around the rules. All right, I'm going to ease into our topic of engagement here, talking about these old arcades, because I admit, as much as I like gaming, I've, I've mentioned before, I'm not very good at it, especially with the coordination and the fast switch and the rest of it. And I would gravitate towards the games I could play for a long time mm. rather than the ones I liked, which is really weird when you think about like we were going to the arcade, and I'd get so excited and I'd go and I'd play Monaco Grand Prix, which is a pretty bad racing game because all you really do is floor it all the time. So there's like no amount of finesse with the brakes and the clutch and you just pretty much go left and right. But I could really get a lot of life out of my token the way I couldn't 
I guess I'd get into it and it was fun to keep going. But I think there was such a high level of entry to be able to be good at these games. And I never really was. And if you've seen the documentary King of Kong, they talk about kind of what a surprise it is that Donkey Kong is so popular or was so popular given how freaking hard it was. And, you know, I'd be done in like a minute and a half with Donkey Kong. I wanted to be engaged by it because there were so many things pulling me in, but it was just too damn hard for me. So it was sort of, I don't know that there was ever one arcade game that had the right mix of appeal and my ability to play it where I ever got true engagement in a way that I I think I do now with console games where it's, of course, a completely different story. Yeah, point of entry is something that I feel like has improved a ton. Not only are there so many different types of video games now, but there's much more engagement with, are you playing on this easy mode or on the normal level or on the extremely hard level? I don't know if we had quite as much of that back then. Well, the business model was different back then in the coin-op days. They wanted to get as many quarters out of you as they could. And so that's why they designed games to be played in 90 seconds, unless you were had spent the money to get really good. And then that changed, of course, when you're owning home consoles and playing games on PC where they can design around a much longer experience and, you know, give you games like Ultima, which will take dozens of hours to get through after you've paid your whatever it was, 30, 40 bucks at the time. Yeah, it's interesting that the interest in skills between those games, I don't know what the skills, but at least the interest carried over that, you know, I too started with arcade games, but was very taken with my Brian and I, I might have played Ultima 4 together on the Apple IIe, and even before that, Zork and things like that, that have very little in common in pacing in what you actually do from moment to moment. But yet it was the novelty of the digital at all and the story hook and all that stuff. I guess, you know, I just referred to my intense relationship with these games that require so many hours. I like to, if I'm going to do them at all, to get in there and sort of in more or less one monogamous block like I'm just playing Witcher 3 right now I'm not playing any other games right now and then when I'm tired of that I will break up with it and it will probably never go back to it because it is in part you know you got to get the controls you got to get so the reactions are natural and once you even put that aside for a few months and play other games it's hard to get that back Whereas by comparison, an arcade is, I guess, a whorehouse. If <laughs> or, or Old Town Country Buffet, maybe, would be a more uh, polite way of putting it. <laughs> oh, I'm totally going with Mark's metaphor on this. <laughs> you got to pay each time for each one. <laughs> oh, gross. Way to ruin our podcast, Mark. Yeah, now I'm conflating whorehouse and country buffets. So that is going to take some time to work through. I guess I didn't realize that motivation and engagement as research topics are totally different. Why you get into it in the first place and why you keep going. Yeah, I think they're they're different topics. Motivation is like, why do we engage? Or maybe that's a poor choice of words, but why do we do voluntary tasks? Why do we do things that we don't have to do? And why do we choose to play a game, watch a movie, watch a TV series, play a sport, you know, do all those kinds of things. And then engagement is this related topic where it's about how engaged you are with it, how focused you are, how much mental energy and potentially physical energy you're putting into it, how much you lose track of time while you're doing it, and sort of how much of yourself you invest in that activity, where you're just really engaged, really sticking to it and doing it. And I think, you know, motivation is usually required for engagement. You have to be motivated to do something before you can become engaged in it. Otherwise, you're just kind of doing it. But yeah, they're they're typically studied differently. And I think 
that, you know, one of the misconceptions that you see out there a lot around motivation is that this is one of the questions I get asked a lot. Like people will, will write in, you know, to the website or when I go and do a talk, they'll ask this question of why do people play games? And especially people that don't play games want the answer to this question, right? Or, or parents, you know, like why is my kid playing Minecraft so much? Or why does my daughter in particular like play Valorant so much, which is a competitive online shooter? And like so many other things in life, that depends. It's sort of idiosyncratic to the person. It's specific to the person, but researchers sort of have identified different needs that are satisfied by playing games. So you have some people that enjoy the social aspects of playing games. You have some people enjoy the competitive aspects and they like to flex their skills and develop their skills. Some people like narratives, some people like creating things and expressing themselves. So there's a few different of these taxonomies, but the basic idea that they share is that like there's different reasons why people play games and there's different needs that people satisfy through playing games. And then you can also often graph this onto other activities as well, like watching movies or TV or reading books or playing sports and doing all that kind of stuff. But a lot of it has been done specifically around games and they're not one or the other. So people can have multiple motivations. Like I like expressing myself in a competitive environment. Or I like exploring in a way that feeds into a narrative. And then engagement sort of follows on to that and looks at how well those games like satisfy certain psychological needs, how well they scratch psychological itches around, you know, am I doing something well? Am I important to other people? Am I giving meaningful choice in what I do? You know, those are motivation and engagement related questions. On one of your podcasts, it was mentioned that people will tend to gravitate towards games that are kind of the opposite of how they're feeling. So if there's somebody who's feeling rather bored, they might actually want to engage with something that really stimulates their brain. Or if you're feeling very nervous, you might be somebody who goes to something that's just a bit more of a, I don't have to put my brain to this and my, my body is just going to flow. Yeah, I think we turn to media and games in particular for things that we don't get out of our lives otherwise. I almost said that we don't get out of real life, but I hate that. I always say this. And I hate that phrase because I think games are part of real life. But outside of games, we don't get good feedback on how well we're doing our performance. You know, if you're in school or in a job, you get, if you're lucky, like a performance review once a year or once every few months or once a semester, you get to know how you did in this class and how well you're doing on your job. Games give you feedback like every few seconds. Uh, well-designed games do. And they let you know that like, yes, you're doing a great job, Jamie. <laughs> you, you hit the headshot, you secured the objective, you won the round, you hit the top of the leaderboard, or you, you, know, you moved up in the leaderboard. We turn to games, again, to satisfy those needs for that kind of information and feedback about our, our competence and being important to other people and all that other great stuff. Why is that important? This is getting into, like, this makes me feel like I'm in a therapy session. Why do you think that is that we need to feel constantly that we are doing something, that we are growing, that we are needed in some way or necessary? Can I just say first, that was a really good question. Good job, Erica. All right, go ahead, Jamie. Totally. And I don't think I have as good an answer to it because I think the answer is just that it's human nature. Like mm. these types of things have been looked at in different contexts of voluntary behaviors and people. So workplace, education, recreation, all those kinds of things. And one of the consistent findings is the whole body of research around this called self-determination theory is that we like to feel that we're doing well and particularly that we're improving, that our skills and our performance are improving. We like to feel that we are giving meaningful choices about how we do the thing that we're doing. So I can choose to take different strategies or do it in different ways. 
And we like to feel like we're having an impact on other people. Like we are important to other people around us. And sometimes that can be even not real people, such as non-player characters in a video game or characters in a narrative or something like that. But we need to feel like we're making a difference there and we're important to them. And they're just basic psychological drives, I think is what it comes down to. I feel like games address that more overtly now than, you know, 10 years ago or, or, or longer, right? At the beginning of PC gaming, it wasn't uncommon to start a game. I mean, it's a totally played out trope where you wake up and you have no memory of who you are and you have to figure things out. And it's still done. But even when it's done today, like pretty early on, you'll like figure out how to use the controls and you'll get some sort of achievement from your system. Like you did it. You put your pants on and like, oh, great. You know, 10 gamer tokens for pants. (laughs) And I totally admit that I am I buy into that economy of praise because if i haven't played a game that i've enjoyed if i want to replay it often i'll make a new login so i could get those same achievements on my second like i have a second login on my xbox just to replay games on because i, I kind of want to be reminded of what sort of the progress chain is and as mark said i i will forget the controls so it's i want to get those 10 pants points again some games do that better than others and in more meaningful ways than others like there was a game the simpsons hit and run which sort of became a joke that they gave you 10 achievement points simply for pressing start the first time <laughs> like literally for just starting the game and it was sort of a bit of meta humor on their part because you know it was a simpsons game they're trying to be funny but yeah totally you like to hear that little ding and you like to see that achievement unlocked or trophy unlocked and it's satisfying. So the contrast is for Dark Souls, where you start playing it and you just get platinum when you finish with no other points in between. Mm. That would be the true punishing. That would be we have a, a notes page as we get started for this. And we talked about the games we play. And that was one that you listed, Jamie. Mark got me that game for my birthday one year as a punishment, knowing how much I would be terrible at it and how much I would hate it and him. So good for you for being able to good job, Mark. <laughs> make progress in that it is. Those punishing games, I don't get it. I don't get the appeal at all. I guess this is something that's useful about these gamer types, or at least that I would want to get out of a taxonomy of gamer types, of just how, is it just a matter of, oh, it's just your idiosyncratic personality and your degree of tolerance and how much you're sort of dedicating yourself to this activity in the first place? Like, I know this is supposed to be a good game, but I know I'm going to have some overhead going in. Or is it really just that, oh, well, the explorers are not going to like Dark Souls because they want to explore without dying. You know, they need to turn on the safety mode, etc. Does the taxonomy thing help in explaining why Brian hates this kind of stuff and I don't mind it? Yeah, I think so. And you probably put your finger on something there about tolerance, tolerance for failure and tolerance for having to repeat things over and over again until you find the right strategy or you build the muscle memory to do the thing that you need to do. And I I often talk about Dark Souls when I mention a concept called growth mindset. There's been some research showing that people are either, it's a spectrum, but you can sort of place people on the spectrum between having a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. And people with growth mindset see like failure as an opportunity to learn. Or like if I fail something, it just means that I haven't figured it out yet or I haven't practiced enough or I haven't like found the right loadout or strategy or path through the level or whatever. And then people with fixed mindset think that you have a certain amount of talent or ability and that's it. And if you are failing at something, that just means that you should not be doing that thing and that you should find something else to do. 
And failure is just a signal that you don't have the ability to do something. And the idea of sort of building that ability is less interesting or less apparent to people with a very strong fixed mindset. And in reality, we're like somewhere, we're all somewhere in between those two extremes. But you can actually change your mindset to go from one degree to the other. And I point out video games in general, but Dark Souls in specific kind of appeals to people with that growth mindset because you'll look and you'll see like, okay, I need to learn the patterns. I need to equip the right equipment and, and do this other thing first and get this item that will help me with this. And a lot of role playing games like Final Fantasy games, uh, you know, when you go and you fight the big boss at the end of a, of a level or at the end of the game of Final Fantasy, like that's not what the game is about. The game was like preparing for that moment. So the game was like finding the right party composition, loading them out with the right skills, getting the right equipment, all that sort of like preparatory stuff and developing all those strategies in preparation for that final boss fight. And that approach to playing a game appeals to a lot of people. And Final Fantasy games also typically feature a lot of narrative elements as well, but sort of that like I'm going to fiddle with my party and get it in the right composition is something that a lot of people find fun and engaging. It takes the time to walk you through that, I think is really helpful where there are other games that are less like that and you just have to kind of figure it out. My husband and I have been, and no, we have not finished it, Mark. It takes two. And we should have by this point. I think we're nearly done, but I'm going to be very careful about when we play it because I'm not a good gamer at all. I've just gotten used kind of to the dual analog sticks. And so I'm really bad. And I get really frustrated at myself for being bad. And he's very kind, but he also gets frustrated when I can't, like when we're in a boss battle and I am just like button mashing because I don't know what else to do. And part of what it takes to lacks for me is that it uses these controllers in new ways with almost every boss battle, but it doesn't necessarily show you how within the previous set of tasks, how that is going to work within the boss battle. So sometimes I'll just be like, I don't know, and we'll have to hit, you know, we'll have to do it 15 times because I can't figure it out. And he has more of an innate quality of figuring it out because he's played so many video games. That social aspect is interesting. Like my son can barely stand to watch me play some of these things like Dark Souls because my play style is very button mashy. I'm not actually that skilled. So I will typically have a play style in many games where I will run in, shoot the person a couple times, run out, <laughs> heal, save. And it's just embarrassing if another human being has to witness this. It really. Oh, that's hilarious. I went through that whole thing because I've got kids, two girls who are in their teens now, and my wife never played video games. So the old joke was always that, look, if you don't play games with me, I'll make gamers from scratch <laughs> that will play with me. So I always played games with my kids. And we went through that phase when they're real young of, dad, can you beat this level for me? Or, I, you know, can you make this jump for me? And then by the time they were 12, 13, they were doing things that I could never dream of doing <laughs> with those little... 13-year-old reflexes, and they were playing competitive shooters and just smoking people, just tearing them down. So it was kind of fun to see that whole uh, progression. So give it time. Give it 13 years, and you could probably beat It Takes Two, <laughs> if, you, if you really focus. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I think I am more of in that fixed mindset. Like, I, I will work on something and get better on it if I'm actually really enjoying it. But if it's just causing me anger and force-quitting frustrations, then I, then I need to accept that. And that seems like a reasonable response. 
Thank you. My therapist helped me with it. Um. (laughs) It strikes me that there's a difference between failing and being punished for failing. Mm. And that's where there's with Dark Souls, you're really you're you're getting your character becomes worse each time and you're kind of being sent backwards in a way that we did a podcast on The Last of Us 2. And that was a game other than the boss battles where you really can save scum and fail. But every time you fail, in fact, if you reload you get a little bit more ammo back because it's adapting to your total ineptitude or if you just reload then you're back where you were and you almost become like a precog in the minority report where you know exactly how everyone's going to behave and you or i I guess bill murray and groundhog day where you're robbing the armored car you know exactly what's going to happen step by step and there you're not getting punished at all even though you do fail a lot. You are living in the best universe by the time you get to the end of the game because that version of your character has succeeded the whole way through and, and hasn't died. And the sheer mechanics of how quickly it reloads after you die. Oh yeah. That makes so much difference. I'm doing the Witcher 3 right now and there are some hard fights and if you die, it's like a good sitting there just like nearly a full minute while the damn thing loads back up again and that is intolerable. <laughs> Dark Souls at least, you're immediately there. They need the Game of Thrones nun ringing a bell and saying shame at you while it's reloading. Shame. Shame. Okay, I'd like to talk to you about lending platform Upstart. It's graduation season. I've already been to a few. And if these bright-eyed kids are anything like me, a lot are going to be spending more money than they're making for a while. Now, unlike when I was younger, there's a much better solution today to get a handle on all that spending debt. That's Upstart. Upstart is the fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan, all online. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high-interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to get a simple, fixed monthly payment. Now, the great thing about Upstart is that you're more than a credit score. Upstart looks at things like your income and employment history, which means they can offer smarter rates with trusted partners. With a 5-minute online rate check, you can see your rate up front for loans between $1,000 and $50,000. And you can receive your funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. So be as smart as all those graduates look, and take control of your credit. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com pretty. That's upstart.com pretty. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash pretty. Back to the discussion. Have any of you played Returnal yet? Not yet, no. So this is the game I've been watching lately. So there's a whole other category, right, of engaging with video games. They are constantly on in my household. And so I watch a lot of video games. And this one is interesting. Returnal came out, I think, a week ago on Friday. and In this game, you are supposed to die. You are supposed to die, come back, and then redo the things that you did and then learn how to get better, which sounds awful, right? But they have found interesting ways to help you advance from one boss to the next. So if you've like finished this one, I know I'm not probably... If you finish this one boss, then you can go on to the next much easier. Like uh, There are these different levels that if you get past a certain point, it kind of oh, now you can basically take this 
elevator up to this next area rather than having to go through the whole thing. So they found a way to keep you engaged without making you do the same thing over and over and over again. Jamie, is there a technical term for that where the extra bonfires in Dark Souls? I think most designers would just describe it as like unlocking shortcuts. That's it. I I was just using the word elevator. Elevators are a popular choice for shortcuts. Yeah. Gates, elevators, stairs, doors, you know, it's all the greatest hits. If you're going to reference PS5 games, Erica, you're not going to make any friends with the rest That's of us. That's true. I'm just so throwing sorry. that out there. Yeah, if you're playing Returnal, you must have a PS5 in your house. We do. We I'll do. I'll be over uh, right when we're done recording. All right. <laughs> just a few a few hours on the, on the right. flight. Might be worth it. Well, I've been trying to engage these two about Hades, but they don't, neither of them has a PC game set up, right? At least, Brian, you, you're morally opposed to it or something. No, I just, it's, I, I really want a different computer for work and for PC gaming because I've, I've tried having one for both and it ends up doing neither very well. Yeah, that's what I have. My computer is totally overkill for running Excel files and Word documents, but hey, <laughs> it's all right. So Hades is innovative in that it is a roguelike. In other words, you die a lot. And when you die, you go all the way back to the beginning. There are no shortcuts, but yet they have made it. Maybe there are many games that do this now. I'm not sure, but you still things that you gain through the game that then increase your overall, you know, points you can spend to up your skills and things and places you unlock so that each time you go back to running the same thing, they sort of expect you're going to die the first time. But after a while, when you've upgraded your mirror and things in various ways, then it's going to get easier and easier. They even had it, like you were describing, Brian, you get more bullets or whatever. Like you can turn on God mode, which every time you die, it actually makes it easier. Yeah, you get damage reduction, I think, right? (laughs) Yes, because they care about the story that I was looking at one of these articles that was looking at people's, what do they report is making them most engaged? And it had most more to do with experiencing the story and completing it. So being able to combine a roguelike, you know, which is basically like an arcade game, with we've written this story and we really want you to get to the end of it. That seemed like an innovative merger of the two types. Yeah, Hades is so well designed for that and other reasons. I I also played through it and, and loved it a lot. And it gives you that, you know, one of the things I was talking about earlier, that sense of progress and it follows up even small incremental improvements, you know, from run to run are motivating for people. You know, it's like there's this whole concept of the the progress principle that Teresa Mabale from Harvard University wrote a book and has done a bunch of research about it that, you know, when she looked at people in the workplace and said, like, what's a good day for you? Like, what happens on a, on a day that you consider to be a really good day? And it wasn't necessarily like we finished the big project. It was we made some recognizable progress towards finishing the big project. So we did this little bit that moved us forward. And then the days that people reported as being really bad days or days where they either made no progress at all or they maybe even backslid on progress towards this goal of whatever it is that they were trying to do. And I think games are really good about doing that. And Hades is a great example because you can die and you have a failed run, right? You didn't get to the end of the game, but you then get some points that you can spend to upgrade your skills or maybe you unlocked a weapon or any of that sort of stuff. And like, yeah, you can say that, well, you just got better at the game through practice you know, you're pulling off the combos better or you know how this enemy pattern of attacks or whatever. And that's fine. That's great. But I think we also appreciate the like, well, I have 10 more hit points now, you know, or or my weapon went from level two to level three. And that is something that will keep us coming back. It's just knowing that we made some progress, knowing that the numbers went up somewhere along the line. It's really that simple in a lot of ways. Yeah, that really tracks, Jamie. I hadn't thought of that, but there are some games where 
crafting is an important part of it, but it isn't really at the point. And I'm thinking of the underwater subnautica. You've crash landed on a planet and it's a lot of swimming around and discovering alien stuff and building. And there are days where I'll sit down and I'll spend a couple hours and really all I'm doing is collecting resources and, and crafting. And that's not the point of the game. But I do know I'm getting closer to making my big submarine or my launching platform or whatever it was. So at the end of those, I wonder why I can't get quite that motivated for my own job or I'm going to get paid in, say, real money rather than this. But I know somewhere in the back of my brain that I can walk away from the video game in a way that I have obligations. And I I don't know if if that's really a part of it or not, but I, I suspect that's why I'm willing to spend time on my little Lego tower in the way I'm not willing to spend time with spreadsheets. Totally. I I think that's a really insightful observation because, again, video games do feedback and motivation better than most systems and institutions outside of video games. You know, work and education and other hobbies, that kind of stuff. It's You just don't get the notice that, like, yeah, you got 10 more points or, like, you finished this. And, you know, the most motivating projects are the ones that you can break down into sub-goals and complete those and check those off your list and get celebrated for it. My day job as an organizational psychologist, that's a lot of the stuff that we look at around performance management and, like, how do we get rid of the every 12-month performance review and replace it with something where every day, like, you know, we're giving people feedback and we're structuring work in such a way that it's motivating because they're making progress towards goals. And there's a lot that people can learn from video games about how to keep people in the workplace and in education motivated and engaged. And like my most recent book, like that's what it's about. I talk about that in depth. I guess I need a Skinner box type thing where every now and then when I send an email for work, I'll just get a note back saying, that was a good email, Brian. Nice job. (laughs) Well, it's got to be meaningful. Of course. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Getting feedback when you know you've just done the bare minimum doesn't feel quite as good as it should. Yeah. So the email for putting my pants on. Good job. You did it, Brian. I mean, I don't know. I Honestly, I've only ever seen you from here up. So I don't know if pants are a normal thing for you or not. You don't even know if legs are a thing for me. That's true. So this does seem like a transition into getting you to talk more about your second book, Jamie, just in terms of talking about what motivates us to want to keep playing a video game or or get into it in the first place. But I know part of your job has been to be informed by those findings as to, I'm just trying to think like, oh, let's get the game designers at Microsoft (laughs) to go and work on Excel. And then Brian will be way more excited. Clippy, annoying, like anything that is novel, because some of those things require novelty, right? And Work is by definition not going to be novel and even making a joke about it like they do in Hades where, you know, you actually meet Sisyphus who has to roll the, the rock up the hill and, and they, yeah, playing this game and dying all the time is, is like that, right? But that would hit too close to home if you even play with that kind of uh, self-awareness in the workplace and everyone would just, I can't see people being motivated to work more. You do see attempts at that sometimes uh, with really sort of surface level implementations of like gamification. Let's do points, badges, and leaderboards for everything. And let's give people points for sending emails or showing up for meetings or something like that. And we'll have a leaderboard for people that attended the most meetings, I guess. The biggest suck ups. Like, is that what you, okay. (laughs) Yeah, that kind of stuff. And, and that stuff may have some sort of effect. My guess is it would be short lived if, even if it did when it's only applied at that very surface level. But 
you know, I think real motivation and engagement comes when you address those psychological needs we were talking about, giving people meaningful choices, letting them see a sense of growth and improvement over time and through effort and making them important to each other. And I'm not sure that like simply giving them, you know, points or awarding a badge, a little graphic or something does that as well as understanding sort of some of the underlying psychology behind it and then leveraging that. And maybe it ends up looking something like gamification, but it's not where it started. In the workplace, it also seems sometimes like if you're doing something challenging or that requires a lot of concentration, gamification just takes up cognitive space you don't have. Hmm. I took a class once where the best textbook that the teacher could come up with was a four dummies book. And it was like full of jokes that I found totally made it harder for me to get the information because, you know, you're reading so intently for information in this textbook. And it's like, oh, shit, I just read this paragraph and it was just leading up to a pun. I'm like, I I was so irritated because I just I don't have the room in my head for that. And I guess maybe at the end of the day, it's okay if work is work. I mean, that's why they're paying me for it, because it requires some effort on my part. And ideally, we would enjoy that flow at least some part of the time and there are some parts of your job you would do for free but it certainly isn't all of my day that's for certain yeah i think how do we get people to do this for free is definitely the wrong question to ask around that it's how do we get them to do it effectively how do we get them to invest the energy in doing it while they're on the job and not have to do it while they're not on the job yes absolutely i think those are the kind of rewards that can really work is like you actually get to leave 30 minutes early or something like that, right? Rather than we're going to have a required pizza party at the end of the day. It's like, nobody wants to stay for that. Let me go home. You didn't even get the good pizza. You got the cheap pizza. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to talk about the business aspect of this a little bit because, you know, we talked in the beginning, it was getting people to throw quarters in the machine. So games were, maybe there was a high motivation Whether it was engaging or not didn't matter, you were done. And then in the PC era, right, you just bought a game and maybe you'd buy the sequel, but that's all the money they were going to get out of you. Occasionally there would be that expansion pack that would come out. But that was clearly, in my mind, right, the motivation to buy. And if it ended up sucking, well, it didn't really matter. You bought it now and maybe you wouldn't buy the next one, but that was a few years away and it might not happen. And it really strikes me that engagement is so big these days because of the in-game purchases and the season passes Mm -hmm. and the DLC and all this stuff where there's got to be a big business for these companies that are either doing game design, not around what they think is actually truly play that the way they think a game should be played, but just there've got to be bean counters and who just want to say, how do we get people to keep playing this? And I know going into this, we said we're not going to be talking about addiction and and video game addiction, but this idea of getting, and I don't want to even call it compulsive playing, but to get someone who like that is their go-to way of enjoying their time is back to the same game, back to the same game, keep pumping money in. Is there big consulting dollars going into this? And Yeah. Is there any success behind that? I mean, measurable, we hired a psychologist and we think maybe we got more money out of it. Yeah, I think you're right. The move to sort of games as service is what it's called a lot of times where you don't just buy the base game, but you buy the game and you're playing online and things evolve over time and they add new content and they add new achievements and objectives and they have events that are limited time and you go and you do the, the march thing and you get your little reward and there's season passes 
that you have a limited amount of time to rack up these rewards, all that that kind of stuff has really grown in the last few years as technology has enabled it and as people have found out how well it works for getting people to stick with games and to spend money beyond the the initial purchase or in a lot of cases like without any initial purchase, right? Like Fortnite's the biggest game in the world and you can get in for the low, low price of zero to start playing it. And then you start spending money on like season passes and cosmetic stuff and all that sort of stuff. Regarding Fortnite, if you never want to spend money, can you keep playing? But it's just a very watered down experience. Well, it's sort of a vanilla experience. Yeah, but you can still play in the same matches as the people that are spending all the money. It's just you don't have the funny costumes or the cool particle effects or you unlock the battle pass, the season pass more slowly. So you get your rewards not as quickly. Uh, as those types of people. But I, I haven't played a lot of Fortnite in the last year or so, so I may be not technically correct on some of the stuff. There may be some stuff that's behind paywalls. But generally, yes. And generally, companies will want to do that because they don't want to divide the player base, right? So most of these games of service rely on having a very large number of players so that when you go into multiplayer matches, you have lots of you don't have to wait 10 minutes to find players to play against. So they want to get as many users as they can. Even users that aren't paying money have value to them because it gives somebody else to play against. Um, you know, it populates the game. And it allows them to report bigger numbers to advertisers about number of players they have and so forth. There's a lot of psychologists and a lot of other data analysts and probably statisticians and all those types of people that look at how do we, how do we structure this offer? How do we price this new skin or this bundle of gold coins or purple diamonds or whatever in-game currency that you use to buy stuff with. And let's run some A-B experiments and let's find out what the optimal way to do this is. And yeah, they're out to try to get people to maximize like their spending in most cases. And my position on that is that it's not necessarily bad. It's not a bad thing to kick some money to the developers of a game that you're really enjoying and that you're having a lot of fun with. I've certainly done it. I've jumped through hoops to earn in-game currency. I've typed my credit card number in, you know, to pay for some thing that I wanted that I thought looked cool. But my kind of mission and the psychology of game stuff is to allow people to understand the psychology behind it and the reasoning behind it so that they can approach it on their own terms. So, you know, I'll do articles and interview experts about things like reward schedules and, you know, like random loot and random rewards and contrast effect and primacy and recency effects and like all of these tactics that are very well established in sort of the consumer psychology space, right? Like they've been used in other contexts besides video games for decades in in some cases about how they work. And it's like, you can be aware of it and you can know what's going on when you do this. And you can realize that when they frame something as a loss instead of a potential gain, that they're sort of trying to manipulate how you are going to make your decision. So try to keep that in mind when you make your decisions. And in some ways, I admit that that's a little naive because there's also a fair amount of research that says that people who go in aware of these tricks of the mind or wrinkles in our decision-making process, like even if you're aware of it, you can still fall prey to the effect. Like you can know that somebody is anchoring you on a, a high price for this used car that they're trying to sell you. You can be totally aware of that. The final like agreed upon price for that car would be higher after they've anchored you on a high price rather than if they let you name your price and make the first offer, for example. So it's not going to totally 
eliminate that kind of stuff going on. But my hope is that it can mitigate it somewhat and that it seems a little more fair to the people who are participating in that process if they know about it. In terms of relating this to engagement, so I had last year near the beginning of the pandemic, I got sort of obsessive about this mobile game Age of Z, which was very much one that when you start, you're just click, click, click. There's always more things to click and start building new buildings and, get, and play the mini games and stuff. And then it runs out and there's a real time aspect. You need to work with other actual players in the world, you know, in alliances and things. And the monetization was, of course, like, well, you can speed up the building by paying some of the resources. And if you run out of the resources, you can use. And I had people in my alliance say, like, really, unless you pay the monthly fee, it's just not even worth doing it, which is one of the things that got me to <laughs> just give up the whole thing. But sacrificing that, I thought that was an interesting model that using monetization to stop the flow, right? That this was something that if they had given me something continuously to do, I probably would have just continued to do it. But because it sort of stopped it and like, well, after a certain point, you need to wait till tomorrow and log in to do more stuff usefully or, you know, on the schedule of your alliance. So that human responsibility factor of like, I need to be on at 7 p.m. tomorrow or I'm going to miss the thing that that was substituting for the built in flow of the game. They're introducing a pain point that you can make the pain go away by giving them 99 cents or whatever or paying signing up for a monthly subscription. And that's how they make their money. You're not of any value to them if you're just having fun tapping, you know, for an hour or two at a time without paying anything or you're limited, you know, value to them. They want to introduce a pain point and then let you make that pain go away by giving them a little bit of money. Yeah, that's their business model. How well can you shed your expert brain when you're playing? <laughs> and if you're playing a game and you're not engaging, are you seeing like what they're doing wrong? Are you getting ready to fire off uh, an email saying, you know, if you had done this, I'd still be playing this stupid death stranding walking simulator game instead of <laughs> turning it off. Oh, did I give an example on accident? Sorry. Generally, though, I mean, are, are you analyzing games while you're playing them or are you just playing them? It's a good question. And I'm probably analyzing at some level or at least for the games that are doing it most blatantly. Because I was just kind of looking out for examples, like to file away for mentioning, like if, I, if I'm if i ever going to talk about this topic, here's a good example or something like that. So I'll snap a screenshot or something. You know, I'm doing it, but I've kind of come to the place where... Like I said, it's okay to fall into these grooves that they are carving out through the game design to keep me engaged and keep me playing if I'm having a good time. And if I'm not spending too much money or time to do that, then I'm fine with it and I enjoy it. But I have gotten a lot better over the years at just recognizing when I'm not having fun and then pulling the ripcord at that point and just bailing and saying, like, nope, not having any fun here. That It's too long of a grind between achievements or, you know, between getting from point A to point B or unlocking this next part of the tech tree or finishing this construction or whatever it is, I've gotten real sensitive to whether or not the game is respectful of the player's time. It's kind of the phrase that I like to use where they're saying like, okay, this could be done in five minutes, but you're making it take 30. And I, as a working adult and parent, have limited time to spend on these kinds of things. So I will move on to the next thing because the other thing is these days, like there's so much potential entertainment available from all corners of the globe, right? Like I don't have to be sitting here playing this game. I'm not enjoying. I could be playing a different game. I could be watching a show. I could be playing a board game. I could be reading the internet. I could be reading a book, whatever. 
come on, you're supposed to do them all at the same time. That's the modern <laughs> That's way. It's hard. Yeah, you can listen to podcasts while playing a lot of games. I do that sometimes. I think what Jamie is saying is this game could have been covered in an email. Could be really neat. <laughs> That's to- true. This game could have been an email. <laughs> With doing the work of a psychology of video games that's type psychologist, I I could have said that better. What would you call yourself? I'm an organizational, industrial organizational psychologist by training and work. But the stuff that I do around the psychology of games is just, it's looking at the overlap between psychology and games. Is it a passion? Is there an end goal? I guess what I'm getting at is, is your end goal just, I want to make the experience of gaming better and I can do that through thinking of my own motivations and others' motivations and to write about that and Mm -hmm. hope that by writing and talking about it that video game designers catch that information and start using it? Or I assume there must be quite an interest from video game designers and uh, studios to hire people like you to explain how to make that design more engaging. Yeah. My goal is to popularize the use of psychology to designing and understanding games, both for people that make them and people that play them. And I try in my experiences and like games that I played and the observations I make are usually like I'll use those as illustrations or examples, but I try to lean mostly on actual academic research. So I'll go to the models in psychology and go back to peer-reviewed papers and and books composed of collections of peer-reviewed research to make that point or to back up that point and share that information. And I usually like to talk about an observation or a thing in a video game as an example and then go and talk about a study or a line of research that sort of illustrates what's really going on here or offers a potential explanation for You know, why is this design trope used so often? Why do people behave this way when they're playing games? Why is the price for this thing structured the way it is, etc.? My own observations are just sort of for anecdote and illustration. But I always, you know, all the articles that I write on the website will contain footnotes with citations for things. My guests on the podcast will often be researchers or people that are drawing from research on, on that kind of stuff. And we'll talk about citations and that sort of stuff. I think Erica was hoping that there was a term video gameologist or something. Yeah. May yeah. I just suggest meta nerd, you know, <laughs> a nerdy thing about a nerdy thing. I think that's a, a hyper nerd. <laughs> I assume that there is that there. I mean, the fact that there are, I remember being younger and learning that there were organizational psychologists. I didn't know that was a thing that like companies would hire people to do that. So it only seems natural that game studios would be looking at the same thing. I do know I was listening to a podcast the other day, some guys I listen to a lot on Kind of Funny, and they had a guest on, Steve Saylor. And Steve runs along with some others, Can I Play That?, which is specifically about how they want to help people who have accessibility issues know if know how accessible a game is. And he has been a consultant on things like Last of Us Part Two, and talked about some other people who have been consultants on games such as that. So seems like it would make sense to think about that accessibility from all different types of aspects. Yeah, and and one of the common questions I get, you know, I'll get emails from people saying like, hey, I'm a psychology major, I'm currently pursuing my undergraduate degree, I love video games, I want to get into this psychology of games thing. You know, which is kind of what you were getting at. Like, what is, is there a career called gaming psychologist or is there something like that? And my experience has been that most of the people with psychology backgrounds that go into the gaming industry We'll do it via things like um, user experience and user interface design. Mm -hmm. So there's like a Mm -hmm. whole career, there's a whole discipline around like how do you develop good interfaces that give 
players the experience that the designers want them to have. Accessibility is part of that, but so it's just usability. Yeah. There's a lot of people who come out of psychology degrees with really good data skills. Like I can manipulate and analyze data and those people are really valuable to gaming companies for a lot of, for a lot of the reasons we talked around, around monetization, for example, but also just making sense of player behaviors and data about players and all that sort of stuff. To tell the truth, I don't know of a lot of people in design or production roles who have psychology backgrounds. They may have like data backgrounds or computer science backgrounds, but I don't think anybody's going to be like, hey, you're a psychologist, come design a game for us. Like those people come up through other, you know, other disciplines. There are some consulting companies out there that will go in and say, here's how your game does on, you know, satisfying those different psychological needs, for example. Like they'll offer consulting around those kinds of things. How do we create a better experience with flow? Yeah, as part of the the UX, the user experience aspect of it, for sure. And then outside of the game design and the game company space, there's also a lot of game therapy and geek therapy people who are using video games to help people around like mental health issues. So these are like psychiatrists and licensed therapists who incorporate video games into their therapy and their sessions. So you know, if you're working with somebody who has severe anxiety issues or somebody who, you know, is the, on the autism spectrum or has other special needs like that, these are the types of people who would normally work with them and play games with them and, and give them skills to practice and set them up with scenarios where it's easy and safe. They feel safe practicing those skills. And a lot of those people incorporate both video games and like tabletop role playing games and board games into that kind of practice as well as just the larger culture around superheroes and comic books and science fiction and fantasy and all that sort of stuff, because that's very attractive to some people who will then find themselves in situations where they're getting better at developing those skills through therapy. There's a lot of truth there, because I played a fair amount of Fallout 3, which was set in Washington, D.C., and then I visited D.C., and when I was in the subway, I felt like I really knew my way around. Though I kept looking for zombies. So, I mean, it's, <laughs> it was a, in seriousness, I think I've heard also for exposure therapy for people who have PTSD, having them go through that experience in a video, in a very controlled, safe, endable, safe sort of way is, is a good way to get them to kind of get to the point where they're not being controlled by it in their daily lives in the same way. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Jamie. Can you send us off with a, a recommendation, a game that maybe is the most engaging thing that comes to mind first. I think maybe just because we were talking about it earlier, but Hades is a really good example of a lot of the stuff that we've talked about, just in the way that it's designed to encourage engagement and keep people coming back and having a good time. And it's a great example of a game that used a lot of those psychological principles, whether they knew it or not, whether they were setting out to use psychology or they were just iterating on good game design principles. Sometimes they look like the same thing, but it does it in a way that just kept me on board all the way through until the end. So that's my solid recommendation. And for a real ending, Erica, could you recommend a PS5 game? No, <laughs> forget it. Never mind. <laughs> all right. Thanks, listeners. Thanks, Jamie. Yeah, absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks a lot, Jamie. Thank you so much. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by OpenCulture.com.